my dissertation was on an invasive species. And I always felt rubbed a little bit the wrong way on this narrative that humans are destructive forces in the environment. I think certainly we can be, but we can also be really positive forces in the environment. It's just, we need to make a place for ourselves that is positive and constructive and synergistic and not destructive. And I think that reinventing agriculture in a way that is smaller, more human, less centralized, and more localized is one way to do that. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother-daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. All right. It is hard to believe that we are wrapping up the last week of the Slow Living Challenge. Our theme this week has been time. And... Which, you know, considering that it's slow living, it would seem obvious, but it's not actually the most obvious topic to tackle here. So what do you think, mom? Should we share some of the prompts that we, we've been going over for this week for slowing down time? Yeah, good idea. Okay. One of the prompts for this week is to take a minute or two in the morning to think about how you're spending your day and observe your thoughts and feelings around that, thinking about everything that needs to happen. And I think we can all sort of agree that, you know, when you wake up in the morning and sort of review the day, what do I have to do today in your head? There can be a lot of feelings behind that. I have to go to work. I have this meeting to do. Oh, I've got this task today. And you might immediately begin projecting all these things onto your day and how you're feeling about the time that you're spending. Most of us feel like we have no time, no time to do what we want to do or what we would call free time. We feel like all our time is filled up. But I think when we do become very conscious of how we're spending our time, we do find some time. So the challenge, this prompt, is to ask you that throughout the day, just try to take your time and determine when you do have a choice about how to spend a certain moment, for instance. Maybe instead of picking up your iPhone and looking at it, you could look out the window and look at the view. Or instead of feeling irritated when you're in, say, the carpool line and feeling rushed and, again, feeling like you have no time, try to take it as an opportunity to let your mind wander, listen to a song. Or you might say, hey, this is a chance for me to take a few deep breaths. Just do something that makes you feel more peaceful and at ease and see how you can transform your day. Try not to judge things that are out of your control, like you know being in the carpal line or being at a stoplight and that sort of thing. And see if you can shift your feelings around time to where you're just generally kind of feeling better. So that's one of the prompts. 
Yeah. And sort of related to that would be to reframe the time that you're spending waiting. So whether this is at a stoplight or in line somewhere, or for me, like water to boil for my tea, observe the thought that you should be doing something else or you could be doing something else that it's holding you back in some way from doing that. And instead, replace it with a feeling of relief at the chance to be aware of the moment and of your breathing and of your surroundings. Reframing the time you spend waiting is a great opportunity to practice mindfulness. It's really lovely to have the opportunity to pause. Yeah, you can sort of look at it as as found time when mm-hmm. you just think about it differently. So those are just a couple of the prompts or exercises to help us in our perception of time this week. And the constant cultural affirmation of the scarcity of time. Think how often we tell ourselves that we have no time Mm -hmm. or that we don't have enough time. And I would just like for us to think about it in terms of we do have time because we're here and we're breathing and you're driving to work or you're feeding your children or you're doing things that you have to do. But that is you are in time. You have time. What I think we really are feeling is that we don't have a choice of how to spend our time. So again, just reflecting over the two exercises we just talked about. When you get up in the morning and you're thinking of all the ways you don't have time, just try to switch that around and say, I do have time today. I have time. You might even not believe it at first, but just try it. Sorry, I have time. And see if you can discover how many things you do have time for. Pet the dog. Look at the view. Give your child a hug. I mean, even for the quote unquote productive stuff, for me, it's like folding laundry. I really like to believe that I don't have time to do that, but it actually doesn't take that long. And it can be also very mindful, slowing down thing. Yeah. Emptying the dishwasher is another one. Like, oh, I don't have time to empty the dishwasher, but, you know, just do it and not feel like it's robbing you of life. Yeah. (laughs) You're just emptying the dishwasher. Yeah. And it actually goes very fast. It does. And, And so anyway, we all have the same 24 hours in the day. And a lot of people might bristle at that because again, the culture tells us, I have no time. We have no time. You have no time. Mm -hmm. And we believe it. We so believe it so much. And the challenge I think for this week is to tell ourselves we do have time and start recognizing what time we do have and what choices we are making Mm -hmm. about our time. And I'm not saying that we aren't super busy and we don't all have tons of responsibilities and that there are not enough hours in the day, it feels like. I'm just saying maybe shift our thoughts and feelings about all of this and to literally have a different experience throughout the day. Yeah. So we are wrapping up the Soul Living Challenge this week. Everything has been archived on the blog, on our website, on Instagram. It's all saved in a highlight. And we will be returning to the Soul Living Challenge next year. So feel free to to engage in any part of it at any time. It's all there for you. Again, on the website, at the blog, and on Instagram, saved in a highlight. And the cool thing is that we basically do the Slow Living Challenge all year round, especially in the Almanac as a community. So the Almanac is our online membership community, and it is member-led, member-driven. It's a really cool space. We've, We've loved getting to know a lot of you so much better in that space and learning from you. And watching you connect with one another. And we have a ton of things up our sleeves for that space in the coming year. So stay tuned for that. It's all linked in our bio. And 
on our website. So don't hesitate to explore if you are interested in some good dirt every day and some slow <laughs> living all year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to make a pivot here and move into our episode for today. I'm going to do that by asking you listeners to think about something that might not be on your mind too much. So many of us love grains, right? Especially those who want to lean more into plant-based eating. And you've probably heard about the sudden resurgence of interest in sourdough baking during the pandemic. So yeah, there's a lot of intention nowadays around um, you know, bread baking and, and eating well and eating whole grains and all this sort of thing. But eating more plants and baking at home are one thing, but have you stopped to think about where those grains you're using are coming from? And why should we even care? That's in part because probably the grains we most commonly access for our home use and certainly those that are used in the processed and packaged foods that are immediately available to us in the store or even in restaurants are for the most part sourced from large scale commoditized monocrops like wheat, rice and the like. And they're commonly grown with pesticides, herbicides, they're packaged, they're stored, they're shipped, stocked on the grocery store shelves until you take it home. So you can read between the lines there on all the reasons that might not be ideal. And that's why you want to stick around for this conversation with Heather Coiner. She is a founding member of the Common Grain Alliance. This is an organization that connects and supports farmers, millers, bakers, and grain artisans to build a regenerative grain economy here in the Mid-Atlantic. Our conversations here on the Good Dirt Podcast are often with people who are working to reimagine food systems. The Common Grain Alliance envisions an integrated grain economy of local and regional businesses that produce nutritious, flavorful, and consistent regional grain products for the communities they serve. How awesome is that? These businesses empower communities by granting control over their supply of staple crops, stewarding the land, creating livable jobs, and producing delicious, and I can tell you, delicious food. The Common Grain Alliance helps drive regional interest in and demand for regional grain through their events, workshops, and marketing. Heather, who's here to tell us all about it, holds a PhD in plant physiological ecology from the University of Toronto and co-owns Little Hat Creek Farm, an ecological vegetable farm and wood-fired bakery in Central Virginia, where she lives with her husband and two children. So here is Heather Coiner with the Common Grain Alliance. Hi, I'm Heather Coiner. I co-own Little Hat Creek Farm in Nelson County, Virginia with my husband, who is a vegetable farmer. I'm a wood-fired baker, and we joined forces in 2013 to start this. And we come from really different backgrounds. He had been farming for a couple of years, and I had been living in Toronto, finishing up a graduate program and at the same time, learning how to bake bread just as a passion project and also as a way to ground myself in an academic world where nothing seemed to be concrete anymore. And I had started baking bread just for myself and my friends. But then as these things go, was baking way too much for all of that and 
thought it would be fun to try to run a, a bread CSA out of a city park in Toronto. And now the city owns some wood-fired ovens and employs staff there to to bake bread in them and then sell at farmers markets. And they had a grant to foster or to incubate small businesses. So I started, I was, I think, the second recipient of that commercial space. And I baked in, I was trained in the wood-fired oven in Dufferin Grove Park and baked bread once a week, delivered it to 30 people by bicycle and for 21 weeks and thought it was a blast and way more fun than than the teaching that I was doing, although that was also really fulfilling. But that was my way of figuring out that I was really ready to leave academia and start a food business. And around that time is when I met my now husband, Ben, and we conceived of Little Hackery Farm, which is a bread and vegetable farmer's market base business. While I was baking in Toronto, though, I was able to access all kinds of local flour. And it was it was very obvious to me. I didn't really think too much about it. That's the product that I should be using. I would drive north of the city for three hours and pick up a carload of, carload of flour, another carload of wood, and drive back into the city to bake my bread. And I assumed when we moved to Virginia that I would have the same immediate ready access to flour and grain, but that was not the case, as I'm sure you have heard from other guests on your podcast. And the reason I assumed that grain would be readily available here is because Virginia is very agrarian. If you look around, you see all kinds of great infrastructure. There are old mills, there are millstones, there are grain silos and lots of fields of grain. And it just seems like I should be able to buy some of that to make bread with. But I ended up having to buy, go to North Carolina to Asheville, get some grain that was not a commodity product. And at the time, I had met Michael Grants of Great Day Gardens, and he also, along with his now wife, had started a similar business in Forest, Virginia. And we were friends and were baking together one winter in 2018 and commiserating that we had to buy pallets of flour from North Carolina. And why is it so hard to find grain here in Virginia. It should really shouldn't be the case because by then I, I had been in business for five years. He had been in business for four years. By then we had found a farmer or two and a miller or two in Virginia who were trying to grow and process grain for people like us. But it really seemed like they didn't know each other and they were isolated and Michael and I thought that what we really need is an organization to connect all these people and like really support them and help them help them grow. And so we looked at each other and we high-fived and we said, okay, let's do it. And wow. the Common Grain Alliance was born. Amazing. Yeah. In the basement of the, about a month later, we had a, our first meeting in the basement of the Waynesboro Public Library. And I think there were a dozen people there wow. and there was such great energy. People we're like, yes, this is what we need. There were farmers, there were bakers, there were home, there were just regular citizens who thought, yes, I want to eat grain that's more local. And from there, we incorporated the Common Grain Alliance Incorporated in the summer of 2018 and the rest is history. Oh my gosh, it's been that recently. Yes. 
Yeah. Wow. You guys have done so much. Oh, thank you. I'm really proud really of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. That and for people listening, you can hear Michael's Michael and Arden's story. They're like one of the first interviews we did on this podcast. Yes. Five or six or something. Oh yeah, really early on. I'm curious. You said when you first started out, you were driving three hours to get locally grown grain or at least regional grain. What was the impetus for that? How were you motivated? How would you have even thought about that? Was there, did you have a reason in your mind for it or was it just an intuitive thing or just a preference? That's a really good question. And I am trying to remember, go back to my brain at the time. I think, I think what was happening is I was studying to be an ecologist. I was a global mm-hmm. change ecologist and I, that's what I did my PhD in. I was also a plant physiologist and my motivation for that work was, was, the to try to understand the impact of climate change on on where plants would grow but i also had a real interest in how people interact with nature and just climate change is one way that we react interact with nature but there are lots of other ways that we do too and really the most impact one of the most impactful is that how we use the land and so through the process of doing that doing that doing my dissertation i really started thinking that the most applicable, the most impactful place that we can do work right now in helping people use the land more wisely is through agriculture. And why not start with a staple food like grain, where we get most of our calories and it uses vast amounts of land. I was vegetarian at the time and thinking about how land is used for creating calories, but I was also heavily influenced by a lot of what I saw in the Canadian landscape, like a trip to Quebec, which is in the St. Lawrence River, is just a wonderful microcosm of agriculture that's really close to the city. And there was all the, there were these small farms all growing food for the city in this really temperate island in the middle of the river. And I really I would ride my bicycle there and reflect on my upbringing in California, which was where you couldn't see a farmhouse if you tried, just vast acreages of industrial farms. And contrasting that, those two landscapes was really influential in my thinking. And I said, I want more of this, what I see in Quebec City and less of what I saw in California. I can imagine myself participating in a landscape like this, what I see on that on this island. And but I could never imagine myself participating in the economy in the agrarian landscape that I saw in California in the Central Valley. And so this is happening right around the same time when I realized that I was not going to become an academic. I was not going to go on to study plant physiology. So what was I going to do? And so thinking about food and the landscape made me really want to do something or to switch gears and really want me to do some to do something that had to do with food and not just any food, but food that is produced in a landscape that is where humans are stewarding their landscape and not exploiting it, and where you really see the synergy between human effort and natural effort coming together to produce a bounty. I had my dissertation was on an invasive species, and I always felt rubbed a little bit the wrong way on this narrative that humans are destructive forces in the in the environment. I think there I think certainly we can be, but we can also be really positive forces in the environment. It's just 
we need to make a place for ourselves that is being constructive and synergistic and not destructive. And I think that reinventing agriculture in a way that is smaller, more human, less centralized, and more localized is one way to do that. So beautiful. Uh, so that's so well put. And um, yeah. such a, I don't want to say unique perspective. I, it's just such a well-articulated perspective, I think, because that's something that didn't come out of your experience with a toxic system. It, it came out of your own desire to see something positive. It's refreshing because it's different. It is. A lot of people get to this place by being yeah. very sick or very... That's what I mean upset or <laughs> I don't know. It's really cool. Yeah. That's what we try to do on this podcast as a whole. So thank you. Yeah. Tell us about narrowing down to just what the Common Grain Alliance is and what it does. We've heard about a little bit about how it started, but what did you all decide was going to be its purpose and mission? How do you describe its function as an organization? I think the very first thing it needed to do was just find people who were like us and interested in being a part of a regional grain economy and connect them. Our early meetings often involved people handing bags of grain from one car truck to a truck after the meeting. So they were early like logistics hubs and also networking opportunities where people could come and find and meet people who could buy or sell their their grain. But it has, that was its first and primary function, I think, is still facilitating a network of businesses and individuals who are interested in a local grain economy. And by that, you can conceive of a grain, a local grain economy as like a boot chain of interconnected businesses because grain requires so much processing to become food. There are usually a lot of individuals, although not always, but usually there are a lot of individuals or businesses along the way that go from the breeder, the variety, all the way to the person who is eating the bread or pasta or crackers. The, my vision and Michael's vision for what we ended up hoping that the, the Common Grain Alliance can ultimately achieve is a like a spider web of these kinds of networks where there's a lot of small interconnected and small connections that make up a net that sort of supports the whole community, which is in contrast to what I think most grain now, most farmers are growing on large acreage and they're selling to large grain elevators and it's all getting pooled into a giant fire hose or pipeline that gets then sent to one or two industrial mills, which gets then, and that flour gets sent to industrial processors and then to grocery stores and so on. And a small percentage goes to artisan bakers who are buying commodity grain. And I'm also one of them. I also buy commodity grain. I'm not 100% local either. But, and I don't think in, in principle that there's anything wrong with that. But I think we also need the more local network because those connections, we can support each other economically, we can help each other develop products, we can give each other feedback on nutrition and quantity quality in a way that is organic when you have a relationship and is completely impossible when you are part of an anonymous and industrial pipeline. So I think that the network is really the foundation of what we do, but layered on top of that, 
There's logistics, solving logistics problems for small farmers. There's educating consumers about local grain and helping them even think about grain as the possibility of there being even local grain and local grain in their products that they're eating. Educating processors like bakers and pasta makers on how to incorporate local grain into their into their products and educating farmers on how to access this more lucrative local market. It's a very niche market, but the prices are a lot higher, but there are also higher standards and certain varieties that you have to grow. And there's no one variety that is amazing. You know, it depends on whether you want to sell to a maltster or a baker or, or a pasta maker. So there's, we have to, yes, we found the network, but now we have to think about the supply side the demand side, and also mm-hmm. how to get everything to everyone else, which we definitely have, are at a disadvantage compared to the logistics that are in the commodity market. You've mentioned Virginia a couple of times. This started in Virginia. I think it's mostly based in Virginia, but can you talk a little bit about regionally, how like your boundaries regionally, and does something like this exist elsewhere in the country? Did you have model to look to or are you inventing this? Oh, we're definitely not inventing it. And there are a lot of really wonderful models that we, that Michael and I looked to when we were conceiving up this organization. So our boundaries are, yes, we started in Virginia, but our boundaries are the mid-Atlantic. However, that is defined in people's minds. We really thought hard about that. And it's usually some, some Eastern part of West Virginia, northern parts of North Carolina, all the way up to southern portions of Pennsylvania and Delaware. Yes. Is it like a membership organization, like people pay dues and it's like you're officially in? Or Yeah, it's a okay. membership-based organization. And most of our early members were brain professionals, but, but we think it's really important that we do not restrict membership to grain professionals because most people eat grain and mm-hmm. most people have a vested interest in... I would call myself a grain professional. <laughs> most people have I'm a vested really Who doesn't want to have eat day. better grain every day? <laughs> so, you know, if you like eating grain at some point in your life, then you can be a common yeah. grain professional. <laughs> That's awesome. Or a common grain alliance member, I should say. Yes. But then you were asking about other organizations, the ground, which is based out of Asheville and run by Jennifer Lapidus was our most, our closest, closest example. But at the time of the founding, I think there were grain organizations in Colorado, in California, in the Pacific Northwest, in the Northeast, in Vermont, in New York, not in our area. Hey. And so we, we saw a real hole in, yeah. to fill it. Yeah. So would you call it a grain shed? Like we talk about watersheds and fiber sheds. Would you call this a grain shed? Yeah, you can call it a grain shed. Sure. There's a supply and a community of eaters, just like there's a water source in the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that great. It all. So if someone's listening from anywhere else in the country besides the Mid-Atlantic, there's a good chance that you might have a grain alliance near you too, if you're interested in local grain. Yeah, find out what your grain shed is. <laughs> so for our listeners and for us, what's your elevator speech when someone says, why should I care about local grain? How would you respond to that? Most of us get most of our calories from grain. And local grain is bread. It's usually varieties that are bred for flavor and nutrition rather than for industrial processing or yield benefits. And so you are eating 
products that are made with a higher quality grain. That's one reason. Another reason is food security. When grocery store shelves are were empty of flour during the pandemic, we had plenty of flour and people could get them from get it from the Common Grain Alliance. And there was no disruption in that supply chain because it was so short. Another reason is rural economies are a lot healthier if people can diversify their dairy farms and their beet farms and their hay and sod farms and also grow grain. A lot of the infrastructure that is needed to grow grain is also present on those farms because they already grow grain for feed or for silage. So if they can also enhance their uh, their enterprise by their revenues by adding another enterprise and dedicated 10 acres or so to growing grain for their community, then that raises bathwater for everybody economically. Those are just three reasons. Awesome. I can probably rattle off a few more if you want. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious. Would local grains necessarily have fewer inputs, agricultural chemicals, or not? Does that just is does that just run the gamut? Does that depend on the individual farmer? It depends on the individual farmer. And at Common Grain Alliance, we don't set any restrictions on who can be a member in terms of their growing practices. And that is because that was a very early debate in at the Waynesboro Library. But we think it's, we feel it's really, it's most important to have develop relationships with farmers, between farmers and buyers. And we feel that relationship sets the groundwork for steering people more towards sustainable practices. And we never felt comfortable excluding people just because they currently have conventional practices, because that closes the door on that farmer and that conversation. And if we are going to try to create more sustainability in general in the landscape, we need to be open. We need to greet anybody who's interested with open arms, regardless of what they do, because that is if there is a buyer for someone, if you don't spray your you don't kill your cover crops with the glyphosate, instead you borrow a, a roller crimper from the local extension office to terminate your crop, then we can give you 10 times the price for the bushel if you want to do that. So people, I, we feel like people will listen to that kind of conversation, but we let the buyers, I think, determine what the growing practices are because there is such a price premium for farmers. And what has emerged is a lot of really strong relationships between farmers and processor where year after year they say, okay, what should we grow? Okay, how do you want it to grow it? What variety should we try? Okay, that was great, but it was too expensive. Or the farmer says, no, I know you love that crop, but I'm not growing it again because I didn't get enough out of it. And okay, but it's that back and forth that is dynamic about local grain and it helps, I think, everybody move in the right direction. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. 
From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it leaves the autonomy with the buyer and then ultimately the consumer, I guess, which is cool. Yeah, it's real world consequences. What they say in real estate, the market doesn't lie. Yeah, and that goes for both ways. Exactly. Some people might not, they might not want to pay for the organic stuff. And so then what's what's an organic farmer to do <laughs> to do if no one was going to, they can't sell enough of it to make a living. But speaking of organics, do you have farmers in the collective that are growing organically or just what they would call like sustainable practices or how, or what kind of variety of growing styles or practices do you have? Is everything represented? I would say pretty much everything is represented to a point. So uh, everybody is using what I would call sustainable practices. And that is really focused on the soil. So practices that regenerate the soil. And there are definitely organic growers. We also have conventional growers who have received awards for their soil stewardship because of their no-till practices and they're conventional, but they are very low spray and are willing to try things like raising goats on it instead of spraying a high nitrogen fertilizer and things like that because of the conversations that they have with the buyers within the, within the CGA. So we feel really confident that our growers are all doing within their own comfort level the best that they can with stewarding the land and producing a high quality, low input product. And so while we never say, we never turn anybody away, the only practices that we promote are the ones that are in line with organic standards or good stewardship of the soil. People come If people come to us to learn how to grow grain, we're not going to be advising them to use chemicals. That's a fourth reason to add to your elevator speech that local grains are helpful in growing good dirt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. What might you say are some of the biggest challenges in creating an integrated, equitable, and regenerative grain economy? Oh, there are so many. But I would say... Just practically speaking, logistics are really hard. Getting the grain has to be moved a lot of different places and moving a lot of grain is hard and storing it so that it is still safe for human consumption a year after it's been harvested is hard in a humid and hot climate. So there are a lot of issues. And I think anytime we talk to our members, anything we can do to facilitate those middle steps, getting the grain from the field to the consumer is welcome. Accessibility is a big issue. The local grain right now is a niche 
product. It's very artisan. It's very expensive. And it's not really available to everybody. And that is something that really bothers me. I love that we're called the Common Grain Alliance because ultimately we want this to be common and every day and not just some fancy high-end thing that only rich people get to eat. It's a trying to reconcile consumer price points with paying farmers a good wage for what they are producing is that reconciliation is hard. One of our ideas is to market our grain to different population in different ways so that we can create cash flows within our marketing to help reconcile that difference in prices. Yeah, like a sliding scale. Basically. Like a sliding scale, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's good. That's good. That's such a, uh, that's such a great idea. I like the idea too that it's a it would be a grant paid for by a government agency that has helped create yeah sort of the kind of economy yes. that has gotten here us here i know speaking in terms of sub- subsidies i'm like how interesting yeah. is that yeah it's a form of, it is a form of reparations yeah yeah very interesting but yeah that's a problem across all aspects of sustainability that it's pretty tricky yeah the accessibility part of it and yeah, we certainly have seen that firsthand with the clothing and, yeah, and food and, and all of it. And even just information, mm-hmm. access to information is gatekept in a way. It's just interesting because it seems like it seems icky to engage in and it seems impossible to not engage in it. What do you do? But I guess just, I, I know I just I guess we get in there and we just try to be creative, which is what you guys are doing. So that's really Awesome. One of the things that I would love to see CGA be able to do is also have equipment pools yeah. for small farmers. It's like such a no-brainer, right? It, it like, seems like it should be a no-brainer. And in in some extension offices do have equipment. They have some grain drills that you can take out for that you can basically rent for nothing if you can transport them. But a lot of the most of them don't. And when I've called around to equipment places that I found that lists grain equipment, they don't rent it out because there's has been no demand. So there's yeah. it seems to be having some small European and Japanese companies make all kinds of small grain processing and harvesting equipment. And it would to me it makes complete sense to just have a fleet of those that you could rent out. Or another model would be for someone to create a traveling business, like a custom harvesting and planting and processing business where, you know, for each region has one and they just travel around and do all the, all the combining and they have several sizes for several different size farms and, you know, they just, oh, barley, I know how to set that up. Chuck, chuck, zoom, (laughs) done. There's a lot of appeal to that too, because then you can just pay somebody who knows immediately how to adjust their crop or, oh, there was a storm last week and half of it's lodged and I have to pick it up from the ground. And so oh, no problem. I've done this before. Whereas somebody who's never encountered that, but has a combine is like scratching their head, trying to figure out how to not also pick up a bunch of stones and wheat seeds and things along with it. There's kind of two models. One that assumes that farmers know how to use the equipment. They just don't have the capital to buy it themselves. The other model is increases the accessibility exponentially because you don't have to also know how to use all of this other equipment and deal with all the various circumstances. I think I might be wrong, but doesn't that exist with like processing? 
meat processing. I believe at least Maryland has something that does that, goes around and you can do, it's not boutique is not the right word, but that's what came to my head. Like a mobile abattoir. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have heard of those. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. Because again, right, it's a similar yeah. idea. You take the take the heavy lifting, form it into a business and then sell that service to people. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be a huge, that's a great, maybe in another life, I'll start that business. I don't know. Yeah. The grain maven. Does anybody grow flax for seed in the, in the, not that I know of. Because we're looking for a flax harvester. <laughs> There's a flax growing experiment going on. In, in Pennsylvania. In, in Pennsylvania. We're just starting one here in our fiber shed. So anyway, let, let us know. If, of course, harvesting for seed is different from harvesting for fiber. You yeah. Know, it'd be good to talk to somebody that grows it. Nobody grows it anymore in the United States. Yeah, you know, I don't know really why. Small. As far co- as I know, took over. I haven't done much research on flax, but as far as I know, you can harvest it with anybody can harvest it with a combine and just like other crops, you it also harvests, you can also harvest the straw. And I believe it's the straw that is used for fiber. The stalks. I think the trick is it has to be pulled up by the roots to preserve the, the length of the fiber. Ah. And I don't know if, a, I don't know, I guess it's an easy question to ask some farmer. Your combine pull the flax up by the roots, but we're just beginning this whole thing. The cool project. So Heather, can you talk a little bit more about your specific operation? So you're a baker. Do you sell bread with your, do you still do a bread CSA? Like what, what do you have going on? Oh, Little Hat Creek Farm is, we bake bread and pastry for farmer's markets. So we sell most of our business right now is through farmer's markets. And we have our bread and vegetable stand at Charlotte's, in Charlottesville, in Lexington, Virginia, in Nelson County. And this winter, we'll be starting in Stanton as well. So we did have a CSA, a bread and vegetable CSA for a while, but we, we stopped doing that in favor of just focusing on the farmer's markets. And then this year, we have really started to roll out a line of dry goods that's a partnership with the Common Grain Alliance or pa- pantry items, crackers, granola, that sort of thing that are made with 100% Common Grain Alliance grain that tell the story of local grain on the back and feature the farmer and the miller on the front of the package. And this is part of addressing another barrier that I didn't get to, which is awareness. And I really think that after having sold at farmer's markets for almost 10 years now, it still astonishes me how local grain is really absent from what most people think of as local food. The spaghetti that you're eating your heirloom tomatoes with should also be local and not just spaghetti. So I, by putting the farmer and the miller on the front, I hope to help people think about where their grain comes from in the same way that they think about where their their meat and cheese and vegetables come from. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's the most satisfying when you have a multiple elements like that all together on one plate. Gosh, there's nothing better. I mean, it gets really fun <laughs> to try to put it all together once you catch the bug, the local bug. Oh, really? <laughs> and the local grain is just so much more delicious in so many ways. And there's a guy at, is it Foggy Mountain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's at our farmer's market. And gosh, that pasta is so good. I know. It's, it's $25 for a bag. <laughs> <laughs> But for that's cheaper than going to a restaurant. It's cheaper than a spaghetti dinner for two. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about Little Hat Creek Farm. Where did you get the name and 
How big is it and all that? Oh, it's a little five acre farm and it is bordered on the west by the east branch of Pat Creek, which is where we got the name. And again, I like geographic names because it really situates the farm on the landscape. And we... Do y'all grow grain yourselves? Do you have a little no, patch? No, we don't. We don't grow and we don't mill. <laughs> That's okay. We bank with it. I get that question a lot. Yeah. And I am really firmly committed to being horizontally integrated with my mm-hmm. community and with other businesses rather than trying yeah. to be vertically integrated and grow and mill yeah. all myself. I, oh, a lot yeah. of people, I totally admire people who can do mm-hmm. the milling and the growing because you have a lot more control over your product. But my energy comes from from helping other businesses and knowing that my efforts are also helping other people's efforts and we're all in it together. And so I love that I have my flowers milled at Deep Roots Milling, which operates Woodson's Mill, which is the last remaining water-powered stone mill in Virginia. It's only 10 miles away. Most of my flower comes from there. And I love that. What do you think are the most significant accomplishments of Common Green Alliance so far? What are you most proud of? Oh, or excited about? There's so much that I'm excited about, but I think the most concrete and lasting accomplishment right now is the relationships between the people. So there are so many that you could point to, but like my relationship with Deep Roots Milling and the farmers that they buy from, that is one of the threads in the web that I talked about earlier. But there are similar threads that are strong and will last for years all over the Mid-Atlantic because of what the Common Great Alliance has done. And it's all we have done is create create the the opportunity for people to meet each other. But yeah, you made the space, we made the for, space it. for it. And then people did all that work themselves. And so that is that's just probably the most lasting accomplishment. But I'm super proud of our staff for for bringing grain to the DC farmers markets. That is super exciting. A longtime dream of mine is to have grain and flour actually being sold in the city. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me personally, like I don't have I no longer have a problem finding grain for my bakery. Oh yeah. My original problem is solved. <laughs> you you have have because, of, yeah. <laughs> because of Common Grain Alliance. So that's, that's an accomplishment. So, cool. yeah. so I wonder if our uh, the, the grain that we get at RCSA Emma is in the Common Grain Alliance. I think his name mm-hmm. is Heinz. Yes. In Pennsylvania. Yep. Yeah. Heinz I forget Calmet, the name of it. Next Step Produce. Next step produce. That's it. Yes. We get his grain at RCSA. So oh, you do? That's wonderful. Yes. And do you know Mo and Rob. Yeah. yeah that's this. That's our CSA. That's your CSA. And, um, okay. Yeah. I've always and, uh, admired Mutu Farms. They are. Oh, they're the oh, best. Just I don't know how they great do Great job. Yeah. F- fantastic job. And just yesterday, I made pumpernickel bread out of that rye flour. Oh, no. Oh, her pumpernickel yeah. bread has. It's not, yeah, it's awesome. (laughs) And so it makes, it just fills me with good feelings knowing that I can say where the grain came from. And 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 I have seen grain or flour being sold. I used to live in Tacoma Park and my grass farms, he used to have his flour. Is he a member? Not available elsewhere in the city. Ah. I certainly don't have it at my market. So those, your next up produce in my grass farms and also Purple Mountain are three 
farms that have at times sold in the DC markets and they are also participating in the grain stand pilot that is happening now in with Fresh Farm. But the idea of the pilot, when we talk to those farmers, attending a farmer's market with a product like grain that people don't flower, that people don't necessarily need every week is challenging. And Mm -hmm. it's It's a heavy lift to expect a farmer, a grain farmer to come every week with their grain. And if they don't come every week, then people forget that they're there. So we, that's where the, I think the idea of the grain stand came where CGA acts as an intermediary to be the person employee staff to actually show up to the farmer's market every day or every week and, and market people's grains for them along with recipes and education and all of the other support that a lot of people need to get over the hump to actually trying a local grain versus something that they are familiar with in the grocery store. Grain stand going to be at one location or? I think the idea is that it's going starting next year, it will be at several locations, but right now it is just at DuPont and the pilot just ended. It was just piloted for a few weeks, but really starting in 2023, you can find the grain stand in several DC markets. Awesome. How did it go? How did the pilot go? I think it would really, I haven't heard the final rundown, but I think it was, I think it was a success. Oh my gosh. I want to have it at my farmer's market. Who should I contact? I'll stand there. Libby Lyon at Come Grain Alliance is our, is the point person. I can send you her email. Yeah. So I was going to say that my garage farms, you can mail order it. And that's how I got through COVID, came to my doorstep. So that was just amazing. There's your food security (laughs) for you. There it was. Like, uh, yeah. You know how people were freaking out because there wasn't any flour in the store. Yes. And I was like, "Uh aha, I had mine. So Heather, what does slow living mean to you? I would say for me, slow living is really about feeling grounded. Feeling grounded both like in my family, but also in my community. I, I really knowing where... I am feeling like I'm connected to and responsible for the little patch of land that I get to steward, but also that I'm connected to other businesses and members in my community through the work that I do and that we're all in it together. It means that we are eating food that is more consciously grown and doing work that is just about bringing that to other people also. So that that's slow living. It's like <laughs> living in the real world. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And what does the good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that literally or metaphorically. Just what comes to mind for you? Oh, I live on a farm. It all starts with good dirt. The soil is really where everything starts and taking good care of it guarantees you good food, creates a beautiful landscape for you to live in. It sequesters carbon so your climate is more stable. It's really, it helps you just really connect to where you are and feel grounded. People talk about feeding the soil and regenerating the soil, but it's true. That's where it starts. Yeah. Yes. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you want folks to understand about the Common Grain Alliance or local grain or anything like that that you feel like we haven't touched on yet or that you just want to reiterate just to leave people with? One of the easiest ways that people can feel grounded is to think a little bit more, to ask questions about where their food comes from and to think about where 
who is actually producing their food and how far away they are and are they part of the community and how are they managing the land. It's not, I don't think it's just warm and fuzzy feelings that make that relationship or that knowledge powerful. I think it is, it goes deeper than that, goes into the soil and it goes into the roots of the community and just how resilient we are going to be in in the future. If we are supporting each other economically, if we're supporting each other and if we're well-nourished, if we're if we're taking care of our soil, then we will have enough to eat and we will have stable e- economies and will our children will be able to thrive. And that to me is really the fundamental reason why and we should even be talking about local food, let alone the staple of our diet. I agree with that so much. And I've often said it, what you just said about it goes beyond the warm and fuzzy feeling of like meeting your farmer and I hope that people can understand what you just said, that it goes so much deeper than that. It's so much more than just be showing up to the farmer's market on a certain day for something to do and just having somewhere to go and buying this local food because it just seems like a good idea. It goes so much deeper than that, as you said. So I like the way you put that. <laughs> yeah. And something else I'm thinking about before we wrap up, and also we might have covered it, but I wonder... For someone who might be listening, who might have never thought about the fact that grain could be local even, or like what? Besides, I guess, looking up, say they don't have a grain alliance nearby them. What do you think, like what's a helpful thing to type into Google or what's the question to ask to find it? And say there's no local grain. Are there certain commodity, like you said, you you use some commodity flour. So are there certain things to look for on the flower bags at the store that they do have access to that if they do want to make quote unquote better, not to put a judgment on it, but choices towards a more localized, more regenerative grain economy, then what can they do? I think that's a great question. And the the first thing I would say is if you have no local grain, then the best thing you can do is to buy an organic product. I think the best one out there is King Arthur, which is nationally distributed. They're a certified B Corp. It's a great business for many, in many ways. And they produce so- Yeah, and they're employee-owned They're employee-owned. And so their organic line is really like the top-notch product you can get out there in an everyday grocery store. As far as trying to find your grain economy, I think social media is a really great resource. A lot of the businesses who are more artisan and local use the hashtag local grain economy or farmer Miller Baker. So that's a good way to find businesses that are thinking about that. And from there, you can usually go down the rabbit hole that we call now is social media. But but yeah, there sometimes I think you brought up a really good point. Sometimes it is really hard to find. It goes back to that accessibility barrier from someone's perspective like mine who wants to promote local grain and make it more common. How do we put local grain in front of somebody who doesn't even really think about local grain or local food? How do you start that? How do you what do we need to do to usher in this idea without being patronizing or condescending or make judgments on their choices, their family choices, because that's the last thing we want to do. And that's a question of equity and it's a question of accessibility. And it's something that we are still working on. Yeah. This has been so lovely, Heather. Thank you so much. Is there anything else before we go? Oh, I guess maybe if you haven't said it already, tell us exactly how people can find 
come Grain Alliance specifically, like where are you online and do you have a mailing list and things like that? Okay, yeah. Yeah, Common Grain Alliance can be found at commongrainalliance.org. There's a link to sign up to the newsletter, which is a monthly newsletter and also a link for donations and to join. And I really encourage anybody who feels inspired by this conversation today to consider joining the Common Grain Alliance to support our work. And then and then you can call yourself a grain professional. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And Little Hat Creek Farm is also on the web at littlehatcreek.com. And we occasionally post to Instagram at Little Hat Creek, but the Common Grain Alliance has a very active and wonderful Instagram feed too at Common Grain Alliance. Excellent. So next time we're in Charlottesville, where do we find Little Hat Creek Pastry? Every Saturday at the Iggs Art Park Farmer's Market in Charlottesville. You can also find our our bread at Integral Yoga Natural Foods and our crackers and cookies. You can find at Green Grocery, at Feast, and a couple other locations in Charlottesville. Very cool. Thank you. I have another question. Are there any like restaurants or bakeries in the area for anyone in the Charlottesville, D.C. area that you think do a really good job of featuring local grains and that work with CGA or that you know of? Or- Mills in Charlottesville, Slice Verso in Nelson County, Albemarle Baking Company and Marie Beth Bakery are also, they also use so good local I've grains, Althea Bread in Charlottesville. And oh, 4P Foods is if you, they have a weekly CSA and you can get our crackers and cookies through them and also access grain through 4P Foods as well. Very cool. Yeah, I've, I know, I've heard of 4P. And Salu in DC. We love Salu. Salu, yes. They're great. Thank you so much for your time today. We enjoyed it very much and I learned a lot and I'm, really have a lot more understanding of now of the Common Grain Alliance and what you all do and the good work that you're doing in the world for the good dirt. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure to talk to you both today. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in the link in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer with original music composed and performed by John Kingsley. Our technical partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower and Jose Miguel Baez. Coordinated by Gabriela Montequim. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at wearladyfarmer. That's wearladyfarmer or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt.